say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The odd thing about being this far ahead on a podcast is that the time that has passed between when we recorded this and when you're hearing it is pretty much irrelevant. This is Daria and Jane, and we are halfway through season one of Fargo. So welcome back, Daria. Okay, then. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it's already halfway done. Yeah, yeah. Well, Uh, one season anyway. One season. And of course, like, this is way before everybody else is up to halfway through one season because they Mm -hmm. just got episode two this week, plebes. Yep. So that's where we're at right now. And we are reviewing Fargo season one, episode five. It is entitled The Six Ungraspables. And if anybody can explain it better than I can try to figure out, give it a shot. I'm (laughs) I'm curious because this is one of those where it's like, Okay, I th- I have some idea of what I think you're going for, but I could just be totally lost. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I have some ideas, but no major idea on this whole thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So, let's get into the show. Um this is it, it you know, uh only if you watch it on Hulu. Uh, a little stinger right before the ads roll, just letting you know that Fargo returns April 19th. So, yay! Little geek yes. out moment. For those... So excited. I finally did watch the watch the uh, trailer the other day, and it looks so good. It really does. And, oh, I can't wait. Yeah, because like, you feel like if they waited almost three years for this, then like they had that much time to refine it and really put all they yep. had into it. And if that's yep. the case, I'm willing to I'm, as long as it doesn't start getting like George R. R. Martin <laughs> length <laughs> between uh, episodes or seasons or rather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had just assumed that they weren't making any more seasons because it had already been like two years. And so it was a nice surprise for me to hear that they were doing another one. Yeah. Pretty much what I understand with Noah Hawley is he has a, uh, I make a new season when I want to. And when I have the ideas, I'm not, going by anybody else's deadline but my own and nice. you know i think something like that would prevent the kind of burnout that happened with the game of thrones showrunners where by the end they just couldn't give a shit less and yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. It could benefit a lot of shows, I think. Just otherwise you're forcing yourself into having ideas that might not be as good. You know, if you're a creative person, you know that sometimes, sometimes like creativity hits you and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's hard to force it. So. Yeah. And I I also feel like normalizing the 10 episode season of shows has been a great thing for quality because there are Mm -hmm. some shows, you know, and you know, the half hour shows is one thing when there's 23 to 26 episodes, but like I watched the entire run of Smallville, which like was 10 Mm -hmm. seasons of one hour long episodes and 26 episodes a season like that is just exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I used to watch, um, Oh God. Now I can't remember the name of the show. The one with the two guys who are demon hunters that everybody loves. Supernatural. Uh, Supernatural. Yeah. I used to watch that one. And then at a certain, like 15 seasons in, I was just like, I, I just lost interest and went, why, why am I still watching this? I know people love that show. Don't, don't attack me, but (laughs) yeah, someone in my house might be one of those people. It's Uh, a good show. I'm not saying it's a bad show. It's a very good show. I just, it got to a point where I was like, I feel like I've seen everything they're going to do already and mm. nothing wows me anymore. It got kind of formulaic. So yeah, if only some of the uh, Fox animated shows could learn that lesson. Right. Yeah. I mean, how how many episodes of The Simpsons does there really need to be? Oh my God! Don't ask Freethinker two one five because yeah. <laughs> inside inside baseball for people who are podcasters. Freethinker two one five is a patron of many many atheist shows, and he um always changes his name to a Simpsons character. So don't mm-hmm. diss The Simpsons, or you're gonna piss him off. I'm not dissing it, but after 30 years, it'd be nice to be able to, you know, let it pass and appreciate it for what it was. (laughs) That's a a long time. I remember the first episode. Like, I remember being a young person and seeing the very first episode on Fox. It was after the, um, God, the Julie something show. I can't remember who it is anymore. There, There was a show and it was just like a little part of that show and then it became its own thing and everybody was like cartoons in the evening oh my god what is it was a huge deal tracy allman i believe it was tracy allman thank you julie what what was i thinking yes (laughs) tracy allman which was also a very good show but yeah no well now that we've gone up on a tangent in years so yeah talking about (laughs) other shows let's let's Mm -hmm. talk about this one and the odd opening (laughs) um we yeah. start off with like this slow motion wheat field or dead cornfield and a banjo riff because I guess uh, Fargo's in Nebraska, which is mm-hmm. you know, the warm up for Kansas City this season, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, we quickly learn that it's supposed to be, I think, the fall before everything happened, uh, you know, just to show that the weather changed or something. And we have Lester uh, shopping in a sporting goods store with a sign that says, great sports jersey deals. Oh, boy, <laughs> sports jerseys with no sports jerseys inside. Thanks, non-copyrighted sign. <laughs> and he's shopping for irregular socks. Uh, there's that word again. And... The guy is like doing that weird thing where he's like, make me an offer. And then he shows no facial expression, no matter what he offers. (laughs) What was up with that? That is so weird. I don't, I don't know. I, 
truly could not tell you. I'm the type of person that just in my regular working life, get a lot of people that try to haggle about stuff with me over prices and I am terrible at it. And yeah, part of that is you have to be able to kind of read what people are thinking. And yeah, that guy just had no, nothing going on. (laughs) Yeah. And then he turns in Lester bidding for socks into, Hey, pay me 55 bucks and I'll throw in this shotgun. Uh, (laughs) I know you said that's something your husband has done, but do people normally turn a sock sale into shotguns? I mean, no, not necessarily. You, uh, Usually you can go in and get a shotgun pretty easily, but you have to be going there to get one. Usually the salesperson isn't going to be like, here, you want a gun with those socks? So <laughs> yeah, that's that that's a little strange. I don't, and that makes me wonder, was Lester going there? Look, he was in a sporting goods store. Was he thinking about getting a gun? Was it just very random because the guy mentioned it, he decided to do it? I have no idea. What was he actually there shopping for? Like it couldn't have been irregular socks because... Those were a nice, delightful surprise that he found. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, even Pearl in the you know the next little moment says, I thought you were going to get socks. But Lester does seem know. like the kind of guy who goes to shop for socks. <laughs> yeah, at the sporting goods store. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he just wanted to get out of the house, probably. Yeah, although I feel like in that relationship, Pearl would be buying every single thing he owns and just forcing him to wear what she wants him to wear. So it kind of surprises me that she'd let him pick his own socks. But... And then nagging him about it, of course. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. If you, if you were a better salesman, I'd have bought you a nicer tie. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, it's fine. No, I was just going to say, I. the first thing I noticed when this one opened was right away, it was like I was watching, oh, brother, where, I'll, where art thou? which is actually a Coen Brothers movie that I love. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know why I love it so much, but I think that one's a fantastic movie. And it was like they, they plucked it right out of that movie with the banjo music and the, the coloring. And so that was kind of nice. It, you know, and I, the sports shop building with all the great, wonderful jerseys was, do you know if that's the same building that they used for the typewriter shop in season two? Because I looked at it and as, you know, as soon as I saw just the front of the building and I guess the way the signs were put up, it just immediately made me think of that weird typewriter business in season two. So I wonder if that's what it used to be. And then the typewriter business closed down and then it became a sporting goods store. I don't know. Just something fun to think about. I thought the typewriter store was uh, the insurance shop. I mean, I know they use the same oh. like uh, block in whatever town near Calgary that is for all three mm-hmm. seasons. But I thought mm-hmm. it was the typewriter shop. I might be wrong. It might be both. No, you know, you're probably right. Yeah. Now that I'm even thinking about it, I was thinking like in the universe of the show, but they don't even take place in the same town. What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> no. For some reason for a minute there, I thought they're going season two takes place in the same place, but it doesn't. It's in a completely different town. So scratch that whole thought. Well, all, all small towns in Minnesota are the same, of course, right? All, they kind of are, I all, mean. <laughs> although the typewriter shop is technically in Fargo, so maybe... Exactly. That... Fargo's a bigger town than they make it look, so... It sure is. So mm-hmm. then, after Lester buys socks and a shotgun for 55 bucks, uh, we get Pearl nagging him about it, 
Um, and you can just see that look of disdain on his face. And then it sort of uh, becomes the moment where Lester uh, reaches for it, which I guess is probably the first time he touched it since he bought it. And also he dropped the gun, uh, <laughs> which is just so perfect because in the first episode he gets handed a gun and drops it. So like this this guy is just so stuck in this rut. Yeah, he is. He should not be handling guns. Um, <laughs> I, I I was watching it going, you know, because they cut right into Malvo picking up the gun where he leaves it. This is why you need a gun safe. Everybody should have a gun. If you have guns in your home, get a gun safe, put them in there. Otherwise, you're going to have people like Lauren Malvo showing up, taking your shotgun and murdering the chief of police. That's and right. Nobody wants that. So, yeah. Lock up your guns or Lauren Malvo is coming to get you. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell my kids all the time, <laughs> just to just to scare them. I did um, just before we. I don't know if we're going to the next scene, but I wanted to just point out that the whole irregular socks thing. Like, what makes the socks irregular is that they put a women's sock in with the men's sock, which is such a ridiculous thing to me. Like, I just don't people women's feet and men's feet are not fundamentally different like feet are feet they're all just different sizes and the fact that you have women's socks and men's socks just seems ridiculous to me well you know i don't know i don't know why we persist with that because if 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 a guy wears a women's socks then it just turns him into Mm. one of the gays that's how it happens i know right yeah like both of my children at this moment have women's socks in their closets one because my mom went to buy the younger ones some socks and the ones he liked happened to be women's socks and she bought those and he likes them. They're soft. My older son happens to like crew socks right now. And I had gotten a bunch of them as a Christmas gift and I don't wear crew socks. So I just gave them to my son and said, these are yours now. And he wears them and he hasn't turned gay yet. As far as I can tell, he could be hiding it. Um, but it seems like they just fit his feet like a sock would (laughs) weird and shoes too like can't we just have a standard shoe size you know some people wear bigger shoes and some don't and then you can have whatever shoe you want it's i'm this is a hill i'm gonna die on so (laughs) everybody out there start the shoe revolution Mm -hmm. and let's all get pockets on our jeans while we're at it thank you Mm -hmm. and then uh we we see uh lauren sneaking up on Vern, which was something we didn't see when this happened and it gets all of a sudden super fucking artsy where mm-hmm. the uh the, the second shotgun uh shot gets shown in super slow motion and we see the one pellet travel through Vern Thurman into Lester's hand and then it just sort of um fades right into where Lester is sitting right now um and it's 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 just a a weird stylistic change, which I guess happens when you have multiple directors in one show and one season. Well, and I suppose it could be just a you know when we cut to Lester next, he's in this kind of you know infection delirium, and maybe it's a way to kind of pull you out of it for a second, so you just feel a little off balance, and that's kind of how lester feels which i don't know it's which they do later I probably um, much into this, but no yeah. I, I, yes, I think totally. you're right they they yep. do that uh you know through his perspective later in this episode yes uh so we see lester in jail just sweating uh both from the infection and uh 
just having wrench and numbers stare at him, which uh, both are an equally appropriate reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, wrench just sort of wanders over to the door, and Lester begins his his begging routine. You know, just shifting into that pathetic persona for his own benefit, which just shows that he's learning how to adapt. And then we get a very unique uh, torture and interrogation method, which you figure (laughs) they might have done this first before they were going to put him through the ice, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah, like, it seems seems strange to me that Numbers is so willing to just believe what he's even telling him. Like... Mm -hmm. He's he's ready to kill him before, but now this time he's like, oh, what's that? There's another man? What's his name? Like, uh, that seemed strange to me. I did think it was weird that socks feature big in this scene as well. Just because, yeah. you know, Wrench takes his socks off and shoves them in Lester's mouth, which is disgusting. But once again, socks. I don't know. Yeah, connecting weird. the two scenes. And also, mm-hmm. what it, what if it was a woman's sock? Uh, who knows? Oh, my God, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it made his infection worse. That's right. It could be. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, once again, uh, Numbers picks up that he said him when they had him out on the ice. You know, it's an, uh, he was referring to someone else, and Numbers just kind of like, no, no, you you were seeing a face when you said that, which I guess someone who constantly interrogates people begging for their lives would be able to pick up on something like that i think just yeah. <laughs> uh, the difference between someone trying to uh dingo stole my baby it, and mm-hmm. there's actually another person right right no i agree with that and they they torment uh, him into revealing malvo's name which i don't know when lester learned that unless it was just from uh uh, Molly's file. I think like, that... I don't remember now, and I didn't go back and look. But in the first episode, does he introduce himself when they're in the hospital? Like, does he when they're sitting in the waiting room? Does Lauren give him his name? I honestly can't remember if that was a thing that happened or not. No, I don't it, know. It definitely didn't happen there. Yeah, that's that's my oh, only guess. Then is I that, have no idea. You know, he kind of references seeing uh, Molly's <clears throat> police file. And maybe oh, there was right. maybe there was the name attached to it then, but I can't remember if that was before or after the the hotel lady gave him the name. So who who knows? This is just one of those like, how did he know he was going to be in that particular hotel room kind of things? Yeah, it does make me want to, and I'm sure this exists already online, but I want to just put the name of Lauren Melvo and just do all kinds of different puzzles of rearranging the letters to see if it spells something else because I feel like it must. <laughs> There's just, I don't know, there's got to be something to that name where you can rearrange it into some other name or find some interesting words. If you, if you were like really high, it would be a fun thing to do. Well, the, the only real yeah. thing I, I ever connected it to was it's almost the same as one of the DC snipers names. If you remember that from back in the day, oh, uh, that was Lee Malvo. Oh yeah, you're right. So that 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 would be a weird connection to make, though. I mm-hmm. maybe not. I mean, uh, hmm. I I'm pretty sure Billy Bob Thornton isn't a teenage black kid, but you know they, they've made weird. Doesn't seem like it. They've made weirder connections in this show. That's true. Yeah. And uh, so so Lester uh, reveals that his car was impounded in Duluth, which means that's probably where Malvo is. 
And, you know, he specifically refers to um, Molly having that photo, which he, he's getting so good at diverting attention away from himself that he's probably been doing that for years, just in less extreme circumstances. Yeah, it probably helped him get by with Pearl, just, you know, not, what's the word I'm looking for? Just trying not to make a big deal out of anything, because if he can just kind of be invisible, then Pearl would probably leave him alone a little bit more. Mm-hmm. God, she was awful. Um, I noticed that he, when Lester's going off about who it was, and he says the name Lorne, he says, like, the fella from Bonanza, which made me wonder if Bonanza figures into this somehow. But, you know, Bonanza is just one of those hyper-masculine Western shows. At first I thought, God, was Ronald Reagan in that? Because that would really tie in yeah, yeah. series or season two. But I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Michael Landon was, but I'm not a Bonanza expert either. So no. it just struck me as the first thing you think of when you think of Bonanza is all these tough cowboys and... Yeah. Well, the only thing I really connected to it was Wrench's outfit. He's, he's got the fringe and, <laughs> oh, the, yeah. and the boots going on. Yep. So um, maybe that has that something to do sense. with it. Um, we, mm-hmm. we also have another fish reference with numbers saying, uh, eventually you die like a fish. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically saying you tell us this or you'll, you know, I'll kill you. And uh, yeah. the n- numbers and Wrench get uh, bailed out and numbers just, what if we like it here? <laughs> which just so in character for them that would be a strange thing for literally any other human on the planet to say yeah and the cop is just so taken aback like doesn't know what to do with that information (laughs) yeah it's like oh funny funny um and finally Mm -hmm. uh the officer is the first one in four episodes to notice there's something really wrong with lester's hand uh, weird that a small town cop notices that, but a hospital that he's been in more than once doesn't. Yeah, like I, it's, uh, it makes no sense to me, especially if he was in the hospital for anything else. If he did break his nose, if at any point they did blood work on him, like they'd figure out pretty quickly. You would think that he's got markers for infection, and I, I don't know. Maddie Love would know more about this than I would, but I just, I feel like there'd be something telling them, oh, wait, maybe he's got an infection or maybe yeah. there's something going on, but I'm not a doctor. Uh, no, That's why we need Maddie Love to correspond to the accuracy of medical diagnoses on Fargo. Uh, so then yes, we get, that would be perfect. Yeah. So then we get uh, Molly coming into Bill's office again, uh, while another officer hands him a phone call. And he, of course, is trying to focus on both at the same time, which is just annoying as shit. And, (laughs) you know, like every three words that Molly says, something about the damn snowstorm comes up. So even if you hadn't seen the show before, you know that's going to be a thing. And uh, it it isn't until he hears the lucky penny uh, that Bill really starts paying attention. And then says that uh, Hess was bragging about breaking a guy's nose, which connects him to Lester via the bullying that Bill knows used to happen, and it just breaks his whole world. And then, uh, you know, Bill says that, oh, yeah, he's in jail. He took a swing at Knutson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can see that moment in Bill's face where he's just like, oh, shit. Like, I 
could I have been wrong about something? It's just, yeah, it and, blows his mind. And uh, a small note: the hotel owner's name is Lorraine Babbitt. <laughs> uh, subtle, subtle, real subtle. Uh, another one of those like weird connections to the '90s, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it makes you wonder what she did with that kid. <laughs> yeah, for all you kids out there that don't remember the '90s, look up Lorena Bobbitt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the moment of Bill uh, finally turning after being confronted with direct evidence, uh, Bob Odenkirk just sells the shit out of that. He is so good in this part. Really does. Yeah. And... I mean, he's good at pretty much everything he does, but yeah, this was amazing. And once again, not to hashtag white privilege this, but uh, apparently if you're a white dude and you literally take a swing at a cop, they just bring you to sleep off being drunk in a holding cell and then you go on with your life like nothing happened. That must be nice. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens around here. The thing is, there's pretty much only white people in small town Minnesota, so there's not much to compare it to because it's way too homogenous up here. Yeah, yeah, and what was it the 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 snowplow note? <laughs> what what was up with that? Oh, I so you know as Bill's talking third party through Nancy, who's on the phone with somebody else trying to get these snowplows for the big storm. Um, they say you know I probably need three snowplows, so she asks the guy for three snowplows, and he says I can give you two good ones and a pickup with a baby plow. Baby plow is not. A term I have ever heard in my entire life. Um, my husband has a snow plow on his truck and does plow driveways and has, I guess, what you would consider a baby plow, but I've literally never heard anyone refer to it as a baby plow. And it's just interesting that the word baby comes up when, you know, um, the baby is born later in the episode. There's, it seemed like oh. there were a bunch of references to babies in this episode, so... Yeah, the, the, and the it just makes me the... picture this teeny tiny little truck with like, <laughs> this teeny tiny little plow. <laughs> yeah, the the, the tying in yeah. of word association is really strong in this episode. Mm-hmm. It's a good good catch yeah, it there. is. Yeah, and uh, and I I enjoyed how Lorraine, you know, when Molly and Bill are discussing who Molly's trying to describe who she's talking about, she says, "No, the severe woman with the hard hair." I just I love that so much. Just. <laughs> As a descriptor of a person, severe woman with hard hair. Yeah. And the, I enjoy that. Before uh, she decides to barge into uh, Bill's office, uh, there's kind of this moment where she's doing laundry and just like has one of those one word things and then b- decides to do it, which won't be the first time that happens this episode either. Yeah. And I, while I was watching that, you know, she's kind of listening to a TV in the background. So I had to turn it up, of course, to find out what was on the TV and what they were talking about. And it sounds like some sort of nature program where they're describing snakes, like they specifically say snake and how they catch their prey. And it was just this very predator prey thing that really fits in well with the whole predator prey thing going on with Malvo and everybody else in the show yeah the whole uh and you know there are no saints in the animal kingdom which comes up later mm-hmm. uh it's yep. it's a really strong uh metaphor uh so then we get uh gus asking greta to look up the pastor named frank peterson and i i guess there's only one uh and 
His photo is the most very fake. uncommon in Minnesota. Right. Yeah. His photo is the most fake thing I've ever seen. Uh, so Grimley's really on his uh, detective skills there. And yeah, it was a really bad Photoshop job. <laughs> he he he's doing that thing that like Columbo and Holmes do, where he's you know just talking through everything, trying to find the connection with the in impounded car being in Duluth. Why was he on that street on foot? Uh, before Greta's like, hey. Uh, Dad, can you, like, get out of the room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Frank Peterson has to be one of the most common names in Minnesota. Um, I noticed, you know, when he goes in there to use the computer, he has no idea how to turn on the monitor, which is, there's kind of a theme throughout the entire series of this kind of technophobia, be being afraid of new technology, just like Gloria in season three. Um, technology not working or not understanding it or not being able to use it appropriately. So that was something I noticed. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about this church thing. Like, you know, whoever arranged this, did they just make up a church and use stock photos of a church and then, you know, did a bad, bad Photoshop of Frank Peterson and put that in the website or was it a real church that actually exists in Baudette in this universe, but that real church didn't have a website anyway. So if somebody were to look it up, they'd find that there were, there was a real church with that name in Baudette. But then if they looked for the, like there were so many logistical things I was thinking about this. Like they clearly had to have somebody, I'm sure they gave the cops some kind of fake phone number where if they called it, you know, it got answered by somebody from the church and, but like, yeah, did they ever get a phone book and look it up or see if that's an, a real church that exists in Baudet? Baudet's not that tiny. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's, uh, all what, I think about it. that, that business in Reno, uh, with all the phones, I just feel like that's what they do. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, uh, the whole package for Frank Peterson thing, I feel like that's just, you know, when they kick all that in the gear and all of the website and phone numbers and everything just mm -hmm. leads straight to someone in there who knows exactly what to do. Yeah, I I get that part. I guess what I'm wondering is if they were to call like the Baudet Police Department, which is where this church supposedly is, would the person in Baudet say, no, that church doesn't exist? Or would they say, oh, yeah, First Lutheran, but Frank Peterson's not the pastor. Like there's, I don't know, it never comes up after this, so it doesn't really matter, but... I just, I want to know how criminal masterminds work so I can get into that business. And of course. Of course. Make it, make some more money. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be your new uh, Secular Soup spinoff. <laughs> yep. And we need more of them. Definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, Amy so, does crime. Yeah. Amy, Amy, Amy doing mm -hmm. crime and solving her own crimes, I feel like would be a... Yes. <laughs> That'd be a good show. Yeah. Uh, so then we get Malvo going back to his dealer. Um, once again, He's just the best guy ever, <laughs> just so clueless of who's standing right in front of him. You would figure a guy who sells shit like that mm -hmm. might encounter a creepy character once or twice and not be so friendly, but Minnesota, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, it, interesting thing in the, um, in the van, there's a TV show with wolves hunting in the background. So... Mm -hmm. Once, you know, not only does that tie into the, the, the predator thing, but that comes up in the last episode, too. Yeah, and it was 
the first thing I noticed, like when those van doors open, you just see wolves on the screen right away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Malva also tells a story about a dog and, you know, about wolves who hunt. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help but, like, maybe you noticed this. Probably not, because this is really a weird thing to notice. But does this guy have different vans for all of his side hustles? Because he <laughs> probably is doing a bunch of different sketchy side hustles. Or if you were to go to the back of that van, is that where he keeps all of the pee and the blood? And like, I couldn't tell. It, it looked chock full of electronics. So maybe he's got a couple different vans he uses, but I'm, it's it's all got to be one van, right? You just open up the back and that's where all the medical stuff is. And on the side, it's all the electronics. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I feel like, uh, you know, they always have that cliche uh, in in movies, especially about New York City, of the guy who opens up his jacket and he's got all the mm-hmm. all the stuff there. I feel like this is the the van equivalent of one of those jackets where they've just got all these different things in each of their own compartments. Yeah, it made me think. I wonder if that's lucrative. Like, if I just bought a van and just started driving around town with electronics and bodily fluids, <laughs> I I don't know. I'm always looking for ways to make money, so. Yeah, but that, from the looks of that guy, it doesn't look like it's very lucrative. So no, but of course, yeah. there's only like four people who live in Duluth, so you know he's probably exactly. the it's only a tiny source town, in town. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he ends up buying a police scanner and a pair of walkie-talkies. Uh, so we're connecting technology usage here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. I, again, just strange thing, but he right away says, you know, I have this, I have the scanner in pink and he actually doesn't. If you look at the box right away, it's, it's a black scanner with just pink on the box. Seemed weird to me that they couldn't get a prop box that just actually had a pink scanner on it, but I obsess over these things too much. Um, I thought just him rejecting the pink in general, like Melvo, you know, saying no i don't want a pink do i look like someone who wants a pink scanner like it's just another another way to highlight the whole alpha male thing that's going on with melvo and the the focus on hyper masculinity in this show mm-hmm. and at the end of the scene melvo tells the dealer that he doesn't have any friends and dealer's response was that's a sad story which again they're constantly talking about stories in this show and just telling stories and bringing up stories and i just thought it was interesting that that was his wording that's a sad story yep uh, it's a true story yeah right mm-hmm. <laughs> yep <laughs> and yeah it's like maybe you could make a friend and give this to them <laughs> and Mal- malvo's just like yeah maybe i'll give it to you so i can call you up and uh, let you listen to me shit on people and that's probably not an exaggeration yeah no i could see him doing that yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh he takes the the tech to uh Don's house who just will not shut the fuck up no matter what. Uh <laughs> you know, it's it's just to the point where you can just see his tongue digging her grave. Like, you know that scene have you ever seen Shanghai Noon? No. Okay, it's a, it's a really bad not. uh western sort of <laughs> and uh, they bury Owen Wilson up to his neck in the desert. And Jackie oh Chan, gosh. to help him try to get out, just gives him two two chopsticks and tells him to start digging. <laughs> and it's like, I would love to see Lorne Malvo put 
Don Chumph in just like a pit of sand with two chopsticks <laughs> in his mouth and be like, less talky, more diggy, and, and just yeah. leave him there. It would be at least funnier than what happens to him. <laughs> yeah. Don is just such a tool. I, that's why he's so much fun to watch, though. He's so clueless. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Uh, so Yeah, I noticed right... Well, right at the beginning of the shot, just when he's walking out, you see the book sitting on his coffee table, and they're all about Turkish baths, which is funny because that's what he wants to open up with the ransom money that he, not ransom money, but with the extortion money that he's getting, he's going to open a Turkish bath. So mm-hmm. at least he's reading up on them. Yeah, good to know the business you want to start. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he he uses the voice modulator to call Stavros to ask him about the bugs. And, you know, Stavros says he's going to pay because he broke a promise. And Stavros at this point is just fully paranoid about the plagues of Egypt, realizing that the end of it is his firstborn son. Which surprises me that he even cares because he doesn't seem to give a shit about his firstborn son generally. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's weird how he kind of flips on the dime about how he cares about his son, but he treats him like shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially because Dimitri figures it out like hey I was doing investigating Mm -hmm. on where these bugs came from Uh, guess what happened and he doesn't even get the chance to tell him yep I like how you pointed out that it's the same position that Molly and Gus are in just Mm -hmm. knowing what happened and having nobody listen to you the people who could do something or the people in authority just not believing what you're telling them and having no faith in you and it's it's got to be very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of people do have to deal with this, which makes this whole circle oh, of yeah. ineptitude very relatable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I've I've worked for just people who are completely and utterly inept and had to do what they tell me to. And oh my God, it's, it's infuriating and exhausting. And Malvo just kind of plays into Stavros's paranoia. He's so good. And he's just like, we're only mm-hmm. as good as the promises we keep. So... Uh, he may not know exactly what's up with Stavros, but he has an idea that uh, something involving the money involved. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The promise that he made him broke. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm just looking. I liked your uh, comment about Tommy Boy and Sling Blade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don Chump is like, you know, he's doing the whole Luke, I am your father thing. And it's like, yeah, th- that Don Chump's character is literally just Tommy Boy coming to face with Sling Blade, just completely clueless <laughs> of anybody else and the way people act. Yeah. Um, I just, I pictured that as, which obviously Billy Bob Thornton 
plays Sling Blade, so that made it funny too. But I remember that movie coming out and my brother being obsessed with it because he was into indie movies. And oh my God, it's it's a strange movie worth watching. But yeah, mm-hmm. Tommy Boy coming face to face with Sling Blade makes total sense. <laughs> and uh, there was a close up of the tapes that uh, he has. Um, yes. So when he's getting the the little phone recorder thing out, or no, it's not even the phone recorder. It's the voice modulator. Is that what he's using? I think so. I don't, I'm so confused at this point, but you do get a close up of just tapes underneath his tape recorder and with their little labels on them. Um, I did not pause it and write them all down because you can't see the full names, but I just noticed, hey, he's got that whole box of tapes with him. And one is Lester and the rest appear to all be other people. So he's been recording phone calls for a while and um, it just backs up that he does that. And um, I noticed, oh my God, I did. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can cut this part out if you want, but I, <laughs> I misspelled tape recorder in my line in a very inappropriate way. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right. I just noticed it. <laughs> Although probably oh not God. entirely inaccurate. Ugh. Right? Especially after that story he tells about the dog. <laughs> oh, uh, I just noticed that. That's terrible. Anyway, um, so... Right at the beginning of the scene, when you when they go into Stavros's office, you see this huge white hand statue that looks like it's as big as the two people, but I'm sure it's one of those perspective things where it's sitting on a table, but you're close to it. But I, you only see it once, and it's huge. But it's like, just what the fuck was that about? It to me, it seemed like it took up like a third of the screen, and it's just this white hand statue, and then you don't see it again after that hand of god i guess i don't know (laughs) i suppose i actually have one that looks like that that's smaller than a hand and it's just for displaying rings on and stuff like that but i it was just like okay that seems out of place i was surprised that uh don had any idea what the difference between a wood screw and a regular screw would be because Unless you're making a lot of projects or you're doing a lot of repairs, like I, don't, I feel like most people don't think about the difference between having a wood screw and a metal screw and a you know there's all these different kinds and he manages to just pull out the wood screws that he has in a box that's sorted and I I don't see Don being able to fix anything <laughs> or being even remotely intelligent enough to have a box where he's got hardware sorted into appropriate spots. <laughs> yeah seemed very off character for him and that he's got the drill right there under the sink and and but yeah he's i just don does not seem like i i love where he talks about wanting to roll around in the money the way he sees it in the movies and how it just flies up in the air and like of course that's the first thing he wants to do and you can just picture it too because he's just so excited about rolling around in all the money (laughs) and he's doing that while uh, Lauren Malvo is just giving him orders that are just like, yeah. I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah. He's just so clueless. And not even questioning why uh, he needs to get him the drill or the wood screws or something. Just, mm-hmm. Yep, here they are. Here you go. I want to roll around in the money. Yeah. Ugh, why is gone. he asking about a pantry that locks? Nah, nothing. Yeah. 
It's fine. <laughs> why am I hitting? Why do we close the door? Yeah, it takes him so long to figure out what's going on. <laughs> You're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's so bad. I though. noticed too. He says, like the last thing he says is, um, "What if I have to go to the bathroom?" Or you know, you're a smart guy, you'll figure it out. And at the very end of the scene, you just hear Don say, poop. <laughs> As if we didn't know it's... what he meant. <laughs> yeah, like, oh my god. Oh, poor Don. Yeah. So uh, then back at uh, Casa de Nygaard, um, we have more of that weird um, intermittent flashing with the crime scene, mixing with uh, Lester approaching Malvo at the restaurant. And it's very... Once again, just like the slow motion shotgun shot, it's just very artsy compared to the rest of the show, cinematography wise, right? Oh, very. Yeah, it's totally out of place. Mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, Bill and Molly just kind of find Lester in the cell, delirious, quoting the conversation from the first episode about the uh, the tie of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I noticed when I started watching this, I. I was watching it with the subtitles on just because I thought that I could catch some things that I missed the first time I was watching it. And um, when that scene is happening, the sub the subtitles just say sinister orchestration. <laughs> and I found that throughout the episode, when music is playing, there's a lot of, you know, um, adjective and then orchestration, dramatic orchestration, sinister orchestration. <laughs> yeah. I just think somebody's job was to write that and figure out what kind of music they felt that was and what kind of mood it was bringing up. And yeah. And then on top of it, this is like the way they're able to create suspense and unease with just one sound. It's just that one mm-hmm. little note that it's usually following Malvo around, but it's just that doom. Like it's it's almost like Jurassic Park. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Um. So then we get uh, Lester's in the ambulance and being unusually honest in his delirium. We're saying that he he, <laughs> ne- he never paid him, never paid him. Yep. <laughs> and uh, then wrench and numbers get a copy of Molly's police files, which is odd that she would not notice those were missing. And mm-hmm. yeah, like the the plot is just kicked into high gear now. Yeah, I um, I noticed that you know as Lester's as Lester's talking in his delirium about different things, he specifically mentions that Pearl was washing towels. Um, so we think about the washing machine again and the spin cycle. Um, I I thought it was interesting that when Molly asked if she could if they could tell what was in the hand, he said it's hard to tell with all the gore, and I just I feel like that's not something. And maybe it is. I could be wrong. But I feel like that's maybe not a descriptor that EMTs use that often to describe a hand wound. <laughs> like, too much gore there. Yeah. Um, and I just thought for being in a state that's constantly frozen, their ER entrance at that hospital was super shitty. Like, yeah. they had to go over the ice and snow with the, th- like, no, that's that's just impractical. Especially in Duluth, they'd be able to pull right up to an opening door um, they might pull right inside of the building. It's just, yeah. I, at first I looked at it and I went, are they going through an alley with that <laughs> thing? And then I had to go back and look, oh, no, I get it. Okay, it's it's a hospital, but what a terrible setup. Well, it, it kind of fits in with those the, the, the hospital beds that they have that you were talking about, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's... Yeah, just not 
not even small town Minnesota has better stuff than that. So yeah, yeah. It, would, it would probably be more fitting if like Mike Milligan ended up in a hospital like that in Laverne yes. in 1979. Like that, 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 oh, that totally. feels more better placed. Yeah. And that made more sense. But in like 2006, we pretty much had the ambulance thing <laughs> figured out. And, yeah. yeah. So uh, then we get into one of the, most unusual scenes in that in this episode that's saying a lot um gus is uh just kind of up late at night thinking about stuff and like the the guy across the the way with the the secretive sexy wife they just <laughs> open their apartment windows and start talking um which is something you see all the time in movies and does that ever happen in real life like not unless something's never, going on. Yeah. It seems weird that people just happen to have their windows open at the same time at three in the morning and start a conversation. I, it's weird. And I, I know I'm going to harp on this a little bit, but <laughs> I feel like that scene alone would be impossible in Duluth because I don't feel like two windows could be at parallel height anywhere in Duluth. No. <laughs> and Not even a little bit. No, because... Um, to compare it to the city I was in this weekend, um, I was in Seattle this weekend and had to walk up some of mm -hmm. those hills, and it was very reminiscent of Duluth. But, mm -hmm. like, the angles and, like, how everything is just on this straight-up incline. Like, I, I can't picture... I, I know there are probably flat parts of Duluth, but it just it just seems so weird. Yeah, that apartment building, in general, does not fit in Duluth. No. <laughs> like, that's something I noted later on but it looks like something that you would see in chicago just the way the building's set up um and you don't just typically in minnesota in general especially in more rural areas there's not a ton of apartment living like and especially in duluth where there's a university you'd have that whole place filled up with college students like a guy with a family or even a cop that's making, you know, a relatively decent cop wage, most people are renting houses or they're, or they own a house, but there's just, it seems like there's a lot more houses than apartments in rural areas. There still are apartments, but I don't know. It struck me as odd that that would be the living situation for those two, given that they both seem to have, you know, median incomes probably. And I, I don't know. It struck me as odd. Yeah, so then, you know, the cross-window conversation, uh, Gus wants to ask him, like, a spiritual ethical question, and the guy just comes over, and, <laughs> and you know, he asks the question, and as is wont to happen in this season, the guy just starts <laughs> telling a parable, and it's, you know, it's that same as formula you where, you know, you start with a parable, and somebody asks if it's a real story, and it's like, no, it's it's a story, you know, stories, mm -hmm. once again. And, <laughs> uh, you know, of course they talk about the weather. And yep. uh, then we have this rich guy who sees all the pain and misery in the world and decides to give away everything until he dies and joins Vern's fake cemetery. And <laughs> I didn't make this connection before, but, you know, the, the, the whole point is you can't save everybody and save the world. Uh, you know, while killing yourself. And Gus is kind of like, well, you got to try, which is yeah. just so Ed Blumquist, right? Yeah, so optimistic and just, yeah, it, it seems very 
Ed Blomquist to me, honestly. Yeah. And, and especially like, as I'm watching that parable, the first thing I'm thinking is, well, obviously it's that you can't, you can only do so much. Like you, you can't give all of yourself to something because it would be pointless and you're not alive anymore and you can't give more. You have to give, but take care of yourself. But you know, Gus's first thing is just, but of course you have to give everything. Like it, it just, I don't know. It shows kind of, I guess what a giving person he is generally and what a kind of how misplaced he is in the police world. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just, yeah. And, you know, you compare it to Ed Blumquist, who's responding to that with like, uh, Noreen tells him about the myth of Sisyphus as this tragedy, but Ed's just kind of like, oh, well, y- you know, you got to keep trying. You just got to keep doing it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, yep. It's it's very uh, almost Lou Salverson-esque, I think would be a good way to put it. Just that, that working middle class mentality of, well, 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 whatever they do, you just you just got to do it because eventually it's going to get better. Yeah, it's the power of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just keep at it and there's a whole, you know, like there's a whole work ethic thing involved there, too. There's just people. I think Midwestern people in general make a huge deal out of work ethic and what your work ethic is. And, yeah, you have to just keep plugging away at things and eventually it'll get better, which isn't true even half of the time, I feel like. But, you know, they're optimistic, and if they keep going, surely something has to change for the better. Yeah, yeah. And one more note, uh, the the rich guy says, I can help, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to little to no effect, which is something we see in cartoon form in season three with the, the little Minsky robot just, you know, in the middle of a war, just all he can say is, I can help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed... Um, when he's talking to the neighbor, I, I got the feeling that the neighbor was a rabbi. I could be wrong there, but it seems like that's why Gus would think to ask him a spiritual question. That's fair. It, and because he has the mitzvah tank, like, I, just, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you have to be committed to drive that mitzvah tank around. So I feel like maybe he's a rabbi. I could be totally wrong, but um, he, as he's telling the parable, he brings up the holes in his socks and just again, socks, more socks in this episode. And the way that he's talking, you know, I can't complain, I can't, but he's complaining by actually not, he's not complaining by complaining, you know, I have holes in my socks, but I'm not <laughs> complaining. You know, my kids do this, but I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's well, very you're literally complaining, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And they're both drinking milk, which is the world's most boring beverage. Um, just very plain I don't know. Gus seems like a real milk drinker. So. Meat and potatoes, milk. Uh, once yep. again, he, he's Ed Blomquist. White bread. Mm-hmm. Yep. Same, same thing every day. Perfectly fine with whatever he's told to do. <laughs> yep. Perfectly content. Doesn't need much. Yeah. So, you know, the, the parable ends and just like the rich man who's unable to sleep, uh, Gus lays in bed just wanting to help. But uh, just like Molly earlier in the episode, uh, just leaves with one word and goes driving through the mountains of Duluth, uh, passing Malvo, who has Stavros. And while Stavros uh, is going to take the money out of the safe to go pay pay it back, uh, Dimitri, you know, the person who we thought was kind of a dimwit, uh, 
connects all the dots on the crickets and actually did some investigating. And Stavros just blows up at him and it's just like, uh, yeah, someone knows what they're talking about. Better scream at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and- I... In this one, the subtitles just said somber orchestration when they were playing, <laughs> when they were playing the music. So, Yeah, yeah. I, I did notice uh, this grocery store area uh, looks almost identical to a grocery store right up in Two Harbors, which is about 26 miles north of Duluth. Um, I forget if it's, a, if it's a one-stop or a Shopco or something. I forget what it is. But, like, mm-hmm. there's the place where you can turn right to go to the lighthouse and the shore, which is really the only thing anyone ever does in Two Harbors. And then you can mm-hmm. go left, and there's, like, this huge isolated grocery store. And just looking at it from there, it feels very reminiscent of that. Yeah. I, you know, I've honestly, I've been to Duluth many times, but I've only been up um, to, like, the lighthouse or Two Harbors a few times in my life. And I, I haven't been up enough times to see that. But, yeah. Uh, the, the, the way that they set up Duluth in this show generally just looks nothing like Duluth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's it's probably one of the most interesting cities in the state and it's gorgeous and it's right on the Great Lakes. And yeah, they, in this, in the show, they just make it look so bland and flat and yeah. Which is a shame. Yeah, it is. Cause Duluth is a really cool setting. Like they, yeah, it could have been a lot more visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it wouldn't really fit in with the sort of uh, Cohen-esque just true. landscape. But then they shouldn't have I mean, they've the got loose. a huge, you know, they've got a huge mansion there. They could have shot like it's there's a murder mansion in Duluth. Come yes. On. <laughs> they could have done something with that. But no, it could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then uh we go to Molly, who's struggling with a vending machine, like the one she tried to help Greta use before. And the doctor comes to update her on just two different medical cases uh, with all the information <laughs> of shit that was happening. Because uh, mm-hmm. HIPAA doesn't exist. I, I can, can, can he just tell a cop that? I actually had to look up when did HIPAA start. <laughs> that made me think, maybe, I feel like I remember a world before HIPAA. But honestly, I don't know. But yeah, it was passed in 1996. So in 2006, they had HIPAA and this doctor is being ridiculous. But I suppose even in a small town, though, like they usually take that decently seriously. I suppose the fact that she's a cop, you know, who knows? Yeah. And um, uh, so we learned about uh, Lester being close to losing his hand and that clothing was attached to the shotgun pellet that caused it. So, you know, something or someone. <clears throat> and then, you know, mm-hmm. immediately switches to Ida, uh, who is upstairs and just had the baby. Uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting contrast to someone who's been in the hospital three times in a week and also new life being brought into the world. It's just such a, an emotional whiplash. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, when the doctor was talking to Molly about the pellet that was lodged in there with the, all I could think was why, why is she not asking for this pellet? Like, did they throw it out? Is it in a lab somewhere? Um, you'd think the first thing she would be on is like, I need that. I need to have that in evidence. And it just seems like it kind of gets forgotten about. Um, I thought it was interesting that Ida's baby is a girl because like I noticed in a different episode, it seems like girls in the show, tend to lose their moms you know a lot of moms are absent they die or they disappear 
So the fact that Ida has a girl just makes it almost a little, I don't know, a little scarier or sadder or something yeah. to me. Because, yeah, it, it almost feels like what's going to happen to uh, to Ida then. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tense and uncomfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so then we have more illegal cop shit where Molly just uh, goes to Lester's house while he's in the hospital. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's illegal to enter someone's house when they're not there, even if you're a cop, like you have to be invited in. Yeah, but I mean, if you find the key under the mat, it's fine. I feel like that's just the the standard rules. If you find the key, then you can go in whenever you want. Yeah, with so many keys under mats, it's amazing that anybody ever keeps any of their stuff. Yeah, don't keep your key under the mat, anybody. That's just a bad idea. Yeah, so so she she looks over the crime scene and then heads to the basement, you know, pointing toward the blood all over the poster. She notices the washing machine being a bit askew and thinks that might be where the murder weapon is. Uh, fortunately... For Lester, uh, he also might re- he might have realized that was obvious and <clears throat> moved it. And it, it's it's a great bait and switch <clears throat> with Lester moving the weapon. And like I can remember the first time seeing that, like that scene is just so tense. Yeah, I noticed. You know, when you first see that basement and you see the poster on the wall that has the fish on it that says, you know, what if what if you're right and they're wrong? And it's kind of at first when you see it at the beginning of the season. It doesn't make as much, like, you know it means something, but it's, I don't know, it seems murkier. But when Molly's standing right next to it, it just becomes obvious. You know, mm-hmm. Molly's right, everybody else is wrong. And the blood on the poster, because in the middle of the murder, there's blood spatter on this poster that Lester never takes down for some reason, but okay. But you you see in this scene a huge blood drip from the middle fish which is the one that's right the one in the middle and then one other fish up in the corner but it's very specific the blood trailing down is just from those two fish which again i feel like it's got to mean something maybe it's you know molly gets shot later in the season maybe it refers to that somehow but um you just know that had to be intentional and it may the fact that the the one in the middle is a red fish right away made me think of red herring I don't know why or how that would play in. <laughs> it's, yeah, it it seems weird that those are the color choices they specifically went with on that. Yeah, uh, I I always thought it the the yellow fish were meant to symbolize uh, Pearl and Vern because uh, they're the two that get murdered. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, Lester gets wounded many many times and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, eventually isn't right. But uh, yeah. also, you know, we also find out the reason he doesn't take down the poster is because he's got that uh, Shawshank Redemption <laughs> thing going on with oh, the, yeah. the hole behind God the poster. That. Um, Which is a great idea. Like, everybody should have a Shawshank Redemption nook in their house where you can just hide things. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to work on that. Let's, let's, we should all work on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then we get uh, Malvo uh, talking about the Roman Empire being run by wolves who hunt and kill. So once again, predator. And uh, there's this really sick story about a dog having relations with a woman, which he, Ugh, so bad. you know, it, it's really parallel, uh, not just with uh, what happens later to, to Malvo, you know, uh, the hunt and kill thing, but very, very similar to Hansi Dent, which 
you know, his who he becomes is in the next episode and gets killed by Malvo. Uh, but, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the killer be killed, empires all fall conversation that he has at the end of season two. Uh, so th- very similar characters there. And they they connect it to the Romans killing Christ because there are no saints in the animal kingdom, only breakfast and dinner. And Mm -hmm. it's super, super metaphorical, I guess, but very (laughs) bizarre. Yeah, I noticed when he's telling the story about the dog, you know, he says that they had to shoot the dog behind the ear to get him off the woman. And just being so specific about they had to shoot the dog behind the ear made me wonder if, you know, I, I don't remember now if when he gets shot, if that's where, like, I, I feel like that specificity has to come up somewhere again. Maybe it doesn't, but getting shot behind the ear, that's just seems very, very specific. Um, I thought that when Gus shows up right in front of the car, it just immediately reminded me of the deer in, in the first episode um, running right in front of his car and you see the headlights on it. You know, when you see Gus, it's that same thing. And it made me think, you know, Gus is very deer-like and, you know, he's not a wolf like Melvo is. And yeah, just a lot more animal metaphors going on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you know, the very, once again, we have very similar parallels with Molly and Gus sort of just wandering around in the middle of the night, trying to figure shit out. And, yeah, because that's know. what you do. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> uh, then, you know, Malvo drops Stavros off, and he's like, oh, you can stay the night, but you got to leave, because, you know, I've, I've got to go apologize to God or whatever. <laughs> it would. It seems weird to me that Malvo would risk his reputation with his business like this. Like, uh, you know, he's supposedly the best and is just willing to appear so inept. I mean, I know he's going for the payday. It's just odd to me, mm-hmm. given that uh, a business like that is almost entirely referral based. Yeah, it seemed weird to me that Stavros would even mention to him, you can stay the night, but you have to leave in the morning. Like, why? He's got a vehicle <laughs> right there. Make him leave. Mm-hmm. I It's odd it's not like they're absolutely in the middle of nowhere you know that's why why even invite him into your house i don't i don't know Mm, maybe it goes back to the whole not recognizing death when it's in front of you and inviting it into your house somehow but i guess yeah Um, i suppose yeah it is minnesota you have to be kind and offer guests a place to stay and but stavros is not very minnesotan no he's really not uh and then, uh, meanwhile, in the vast flat city of Duluth, uh, Gus drives home and gets a call from <laughs> Molly, uh, who is still in Lester's house. And Molly suggests they get together to, you know, compare notes uh, while mm-hmm. Gus just discusses a crime, an ongoing crime investigation <laughs> out in the outside <laughs> and just open the in the open. Uh, yeah. And to no surprise, he's tailed by Malvo, uh, who has his police scanner, which he just switches off into a walkie-talkie and uh, just picks up on Greta's airways, which is a nice connection to the fact that he knows that from the first episode. Yeah, I thought it was weird, like, because Gus just comes and pulls his police cruiser up right next to the building. Is Do cops get to do that? Like, do they, if you're just a regular officer 
you don't get to bring the cruiser home with you. Like, that's not your primary vehicle, is it? I, can... I don't think so. <laughs> Seems strange to me. Like, I, I actually have somebody from the sheriff's department that lives in my neighborhood, and he gets to drive it home. But I feel like that's a different situation. You know, he's probably higher up in the sheriff's department, and that's his primary vehicle. But yeah, just having that police car sitting there next to Malvo's vehicle just looks so sinister and made me think, yeah, I don't think he gets to do that. I... No. Uh, then uh, Parable Guy uh, is the neighborhood watch, uh, which, okay. Uh, he, he really sells mm-hmm. it so Mary Sue and then uh, talks about the way they have funerals, which is uh, another connection back to not just the earlier season, but a conversation we had, right? Yeah, except he uses the word casserole and not hot dish, and that just seems like a huge oversight coming from a show that's supposed to be very, very Minnesotan. (laughs) Yeah. Hot dish is one of the main things about Minnesota that people think of. And specifically putting that word casserole in there seems weird. And now I'm hungry for hot dish. So, (laughs) God damn it. I feel like the the way they put the mitzvah mitzvah tank in the shop behind him before, uh, that it's always kind of been a protective mythological presence uh, to contrast Malvo's, like... Uh, you know, ghost writer or whatever the hell he is, uh, just that satanic demon kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I, when I was watching it with the subtitles on, I noticed that um, the neighbor says, how do you pronounce it here? Seirim. It's um, a Hebrew word that I had to, of course, look up. And it, it means a type of demon. Um, and it's, there's there's no good exact definition for the word like but generally it means a certain type of demon that could be like a goat demon mm. um kind of you know reminds me of almost the um god what's the name of the satanic temple Baphomet goat head god yeah it kind of looks like that but yeah he's right away just calling him that and that would reinforce kind of him being the 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 better mystical presence and Malvo being the demon in the, you know, kind of sets those two apart as being different. You're right. Different forces that are in Gus's life, one trying to take care of him and one out to get him. And yeah, it does make him seem a little bit magical. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he's the only person that could, you, you know, as you've kept mentioning, there's so many people that can't see death right in front of them. And he seems like the only person that looks at Malvo and knows exactly what he's looking at, mm-hmm. you know, and calls him out on it. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, it, I, I feel like that, that really rings true as well because like Malvo goes super anti-Semitic on him and everything, but then he just drives mm-hmm. away. Like, uh, this, it, it's almost like a, like an exorcism kind of a verbal exorcism yeah. where he, yep. You know, your mother sucks cocks in hell, but you go, you end up going away. So it's, it's, it's a really, uh, it's a scene not to be taken literally. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had to make a note, uh, the commercial breaks, uh, when I was watching it are full of eHarmony and Match.com ads, (laughs) which is a really odd contrast with the relationships in the show, (laughs) you know, to, to, to go from, Guy who murdered his wife, guy who's abusive, two people who get divorced, and then uh, 
you know, I trust eHarmony. I found love on eHarmony. It's just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching it just on Hulu. I don't, I have the plan where you don't have to get the commercials. So I, I haven't even, I think I'd go nuts if I had to watch commercials. I well, can't anymore. I'm so spoiled. Well, uh, to, to reveal something that's nice about being a college student, uh, if you have a college email address, you get a uh, package deal. You get Spotify Premium, Hulu, and Showtime for four bucks a month. So, like, I'll deal what? with the commercials for four bucks a month. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a really good deal. Wow. <laughs> uh, so then we get uh, Molly finding Bill with a bunch of douchebag men in the hospital, where they were kicked out of a, a newborn baby's hotel room for being too loud. Um. You know, they're just being dicks and obnoxious bros, and they were kicked out of a, a room for being too loud, so they decide to go into the hallway where they can be loud enough that everyone can hear it. Yeah, I, you know, as I was watching the show and reading through your notes, I just kept getting more angry the more I thought about it. <laughs> like, because I've given birth twice, and you know what? Having a whole room full of obnoxious dicks hanging around, like right after you gave birth, I. I would have lost my shit on these people. Um, when you have a baby, you are exhausted and you want to sleep for like a full 24 hours. You do not want a bunch of dudes in the room laughing and telling jokes. And, you know, like you feel like you have to be awake to be a part of the conversation. Like, just just shut the fuck up. Don't go in that room. Go away. She just had a baby. <laughs> you can see her when she gets out of the hospital or one at a time. You can go in and give your congratulations in the morning when she's awake. Like, clearly it's the middle of the night, too. Just let the woman sleep, for God's sake. Yeah. She just had a baby. And they're just, oh, God, they're also clueless about it. Molly is the only cop in the situation who knows how to handle the situation once again like yeah. she's the only one going yeah maybe you guys should leave like you're being kind of shitty and which is just par for the course with molly she's always the only one that knows what's going on and everybody else is just totally clueless and like are all of them at the hospital is anybody on patrol in bemidji while this is happening because it seems like every single cop in town is at this hospital and it also made me wonder, like, where is the nurse just shooing all these people? <laughs> like, get the fuck out of here. You're yeah. being obnoxious with the patient. Leave. Like, yeah. And this would be in a maternity ward, right? Like, yes. everybody who <laughs> gave birth would be right there. I don't think they would appreciate yes. this. No, they're all trying to rest. Just leave them alone. Right. Like, I remember uh, when I was about to leave the hospital from having uh, gender confirmation surgery, uh, this orderly came in and like knocked on the door with his ring. Like, and so there was a loud tapping and then he came in talking at full volume. And like, that was one guy mm -hmm. and I was ready yeah. to punch him. Like, I can't imagine having just this group of cops who just think it's funny to talk really loud. Well, and like, I, you know, I've been in and out of the hospital a lot just from Crohn's disease. I've had surgeries before and I always tell people like, it, when you're watching TV shows or movies or anything, it always seems like when you're in the hospital, you want a bunch of people to come and bring you flowers and visit. And to me, that's just not the case. And maybe it's just me because I'm a lonely, horrid bitch. But like, I do not want people to come visit me in the hospital. I'm sick. I feel terrible. 
I just want to lay there and be sick and miserable. I don't want somebody to come in so that then I have to entertain them with conversation. Like it's, I don't understand why people want to visit in the hospital so much. You're also spreading germs. You're bringing new germs into the hospital. Like, oh, just, just don't just stay away if you can. It's different when it's a really close family member. It's a, you know, a spouse or a partner or a kid or something like that. But yeah, just having a bunch of fucking dudes hanging around. <laughs> hey, let's see your baby. <laughs> I would have yeah. punched all of them. Yeah. And then. Uh, Molly goes in uh, to see the baby and have a talk with Ida. And Ida is just still maintaining that Midwestern stoicism uh, until she breaks just a little bit. And it, it it's kind of uh, an inverse of a lot of those old mob movies where, you know, the person who lost somebody is just like, whatever you got to do, get it done. And... Mm-hmm. You know, she she deals with it with a sense of humor where she's where she's just like, oh, and now he's dead. He always did know how to win an argument. Like it, it's, <laughs> I feel like it's saying a couple different things at the same time. Where it's like, yeah, they're stoic and trying to deal with it, but uh, you know, it's also that defense mechanism of I don't want people to think I'm in grief, so I'm going to use a sense of humor to get them to let them get over their own guilt. Yeah, which is so, so very Midwestern. Like, I am totally guilty of doing that. And I, you know, I guess I I used to think it was just a personality trait of mine. But I think it is just a very Midwestern thing. You don't want other people to feel uncomfortable. And you're always so worried about that. That, yeah, humor breaks it up. And it's just, if other people are uncomfortable, then you're uncomfortable. Then everybody's uncomfortable. It's just, it's a very Midwestern, you know. Like, let's all pretend not to be upset, and we can do that by making people feel better that we we actually feel okay. And yeah, I'm totally, totally guilty of that. (laughs) Yeah, so Um, then we have that, this weird moment where Molly goes in to check on Lester, who looks like he's asleep, but isn't, you know, he's wide awake too. And just this tense standoff where she leaves, and then that's it like it's mm-hmm. you know it, it, it i don't know it feels ominous in a way but this whole episode yeah. is very very strange the ending felt super ominous and i noticed as they're closing out and as you're focusing on lester's face and he's awake it sounds like you hear the washing machine again or that thumping yeah and because i had the subtitles on <laughs> The way that the subtitles describe it is rhythmic heartbeat patter. Ooh. So, again, that's like, I don't know whose job it is to write that stuff, but in in the subtitles, it just called it rhythmic heartbeat patter. Um, use that. Which was very, very baby-like, too. You know, pitter-patter yeah. of little feet. And it's, it's just tying in this whole baby thing again. Um, I did appreciate that they portrayed Molly as a woman who didn't fall all over herself when she was in the room with a baby and had to pick the baby up and like, it's such a trope to me in movies and TV shows that the woman is always fawning over somebody else's baby and wanting to pick up the baby and smell the baby and see the baby. And, you know, Molly's reaction of, yep, that's a baby. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It was so, that's how I always felt about babies when I was, when I was younger and still feel about to this day, other people's babies, but you don't see that very often. And I kind of appreciated them 
showing that as, as a character that, you know, just because you're a woman, that doesn't mean you're suddenly just have baby fever and need babies everywhere and need to hold all the babies. And I don't know. It's, it's a nice change of pace from what you usually see in movies and on TV. Yeah, I agree. Fargo's really good at that, especially with female character tropes. Uh, they're, they're really good at just turning them on their head and not in a tokenish way, but more of right. just, uh, yeah. the, you know, this is more how we, how women actually act and, or uh, making them real people, you yes. know, and not just, this is our idea of what a woman should be like. I, I did point out in my notes that babies don't really smell that great. <laughs> like, I don't get what the deal is with baby smell. I've had two of them. They're not that great. Like, it's it's an interesting smell, but mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly nothing I would ever be like, smell my baby. Yeah. No. Um, you know, Weird. you bring that up about uh, sort of the inverse of that trope. Like, the whole conversation, I like. I even compared it to you know, a, a, a sausage fest mob movie where they're just mm-hmm. stoic and pretending they're not hurt by anything. And I feel like both Molly and Ida are so good at delivering that right there. And that, that whole tense conversation is just a really good subversion of that trope. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the end of the episode. Um, the episode title is called The Six Ungraspables, which it's another Buddhist reference. Uh, I guess hmm. dealing with philosophy, you're going to run into that. But this one is tough. I, I'm not really sure I understand it. So um, it refers to a Zen Cohen story, uh, you know, a a story, a dialogue, question, or statement, which is used in Zen practice to provoke the great doubt. And a monk once asked Amun, what is the Dharmakaya? And Amun answered him with the six ungraspables. The graspables are the five senses in the mind. Uh, So maybe it's just, uh, so we have stories, dialogues, questions, and statements, and doubt. Uh, I feel like that might be what it is. And they, they use stories a lot to cast doubt in this show. Uh, we have so many parables and so many metaphors going on. And mm-hmm. uh, the doubt of people uh, in terms of uh, dealing with Molly and Gus, who are also dealing with their own self-doubt, they're starting to question themselves. And, you know, the world of... I have this serious question. Here's a story about a rich guy who cut out all of his organs. Like, uh, yeah. So I maybe that's the whole point, is that uh, creating and provoking the great doubt uh, means you're unable to grasp the truth. And, uh, you know, we have that sign with the fish. What if they're wrong and you're right, but you can't grasp mm-hmm. onto it? Or your dad won't listen to you, or your bosses won't listen to you, uh, but you know you're right. So I mm-hmm. I feel like that I feel like I might be on the right track, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it sounds sounds good to me. I that's that makes more sense out of it than I would have. <laughs> like I don't. I'm just I'm staring at it right now, going I ugh, I I think all the points you made are fantastic. That's because yeah, if the graspables are your five senses in your mind, the things that you can actually touch and feel, and you can base reality on. Um, then something ungraspable would be, I guess, the opposite of that. And yeah. And like you said, storytelling and 
it's yeah i'm not good with philosophy (laughs) (laughs) unlike every other atheist on the planet uh except embrace the void right (laughs) yeah yep all right so uh now for the end memes and uh what was the that's so minnesota moment for you so I actually had a hard time on this episode. I kept thinking back going, you know, what was there that was obviously Minnesota? And I really, uh, I couldn't think of anything that was different from any of the other episodes. But the scene where Lester is buying the irregular socks and you see that bin and the badly written, handwritten sign that just says irregular socks with the price tag on it. <laughs> I could see that. There are small town shops I could walk into right now and they would have badly handwritten signs that say irregular socks on them and they would be right next to the firearms counter and nobody would think twice about it. You know, it's firearm sales are just not a big deal and people, it terrifies me, but people really don't take it that seriously and it's just part of life. So yeah, the fact that people would be selling those socks and that they'd be right next to the guns just (laughs) didn't faze me at all. Yeah. Uh, So then mine was trying to have a serious conversation while someone won't shut the fuck up about the weather. Like (laughs) like Molly in that one scene, like the the person just won't stop interrupting the conversation about a friggin' murder to say, Oh, snowplows. Oh, the storm. And it's just like, Oh my God, that is so Minnesota. You just can't get rid of a conversation about a big storm. So did I tell you about the storm we had last week? Cause we got like 10 <laughs> inches of snow up here and it was just nuts. Like snow plows everywhere. <laughs> nope. I nope the fuck out right before. Which is it true, <laughs> but I won't tell you about. <laughs> it's yeah. It's also true. I went to Seattle where it was like 40 <sighs> degrees and I was outside in a t-shirt because it was delightful. So jealous. <laughs> Uh, so back to Minnesota. Um, what was the biggest not so, so not Minnesota moment for you? Like I mentioned it earlier, but I really think it's just that apartment building Gus lives in. It's not, I don't know. I've, I've lived in a lot of different houses and apartments in my life. And like, I'm not saying that there are not apartments in rural Minnesota because there absolutely are. And I've lived in many of them, but that one specifically just seems like just the look of it right away. It reminded me of, like I said, something that would be in Chicago. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a spot in Duluth with a building quite like that. And the fact that you would have just these kind of middle-class families all living there together when you're in a college town. And it seems like, I, I don't know, it just looked weird to me. It's, you know, in rural Minnesota, you're much more likely, even if you don't have much money, to be renting a house than renting an apartment just because of kind of the sprawl of everything. And I, I don't know. Yeah. It struck me as a little bit off. Yeah. Mine was definitely because I've spent a great deal of time in Duluth. Um, mm-hmm. The not only flat but skyscrapered filled skyline of Duluth. Uh, <laughs> for those who have never been there, you go over this huge ass hill And it's just all an incline, like a 45 degree or higher incline right down to the lake. And Mm -hmm. there are a couple of high rise hotels and Victorian-esque era like churches in in the train station. But that's it. Duluth does not have skyscrapers. No. They've got the the one tall hotel that's got the rotating restaurant and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. 
which I've been to before. It's fascinating. Um, but yeah, they, it's, it's not, it's, it's weird. It's one of those towns that's not a big city really, but it's not exactly rural either. It's, it's real. it really is just a gorgeous town. The way that I get there, um, if traveling from Brainerd, you know, you get to a point where, like you said, you come over that hill and all of a sudden just the lake is there and you're traveling down where it's just, it's gorgeous. I'm terrified of driving there in the winter. Um, I used to have to go there for work occasionally. And if it was in the winter, I'd be like, Oh God, I would just, I have slid down the hills more than once backwards <laughs> on ice. It's terrifying, but yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous city. Yeah. One of my favorites ever. Uh, and oh yeah i mean it's i love it i love going to the big murder mansion and flinching <laughs> <laughs> going yeah. through that as much as i can yeah just have you uh, this has nothing to do with anything but at glenshine there is a cemetery that you can kind of trail through the woods while you're on the grounds there and all of a sudden you just end up in this really old cemetery and it's fascinating because they've got you know tombstones from the 1800s there and yeah it's Duluth is fantastic. I would love to live there, except I could not drive on those hills. Yeah, you'd have to live on one of the flatter yeah. parts, you know, all four of mm-hmm. them. <laughs> yeah, I'd be terrified all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so that wraps up episode five. We are halfway done with season one. Uh, so we're getting there. And uh, if you want to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash okthenpod. That's O-K-A-Y-T-H-E-N-P-O-D. And Daria and Jane will be back in two weeks with episode six, which is probably the biggest episode of this season. Like, it's even more so than the finale. Like, this this, this upcoming episode is huge. Yes, I can't wait. Yep. So we will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show. Share it. Do all that good stuff. And can't wait for Fargo season four to come out. Um, and we'll get to that eventually. So we'll have uh, 40 episodes instead of 30, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. All right. See you next time.